All right, we're continuing on with the attributes of God. Um, and tonight, I believe, is, I mean, they're all important, but this is of the highest importance of all the attributes of God. And I believe that we have biblical text to prove that. I was talking earlier before church started. I struggle with the attributes of God a lot of times because how do you put into words? And I know you can't. We're humans. We can't fully grasp Him and all of His attributes. But this is just sometimes hard to be able to take human words and to begin to help us to understand who this infinite eternal God is. And, and if there's ever an attribute that we as Christians need to understand, it's this one. If there's ever an attribute that we need to be relentless in studying and understanding and praying for understanding, it's this one. If there's ever an attribute that gets overlooked and we don't understand it, it's this one. And tonight, this attribute is God's holiness. Understanding God's holiness has been one of the biggest changes in my life and the biggest uh, revelations in my life. And, and um, listening to R.C., who spent almost all of his ministry geared to the holiness of God. If there was anyone who taught and spoke on that so amazingly, it was him. And the book Chosen by God is one of my favorites, and, and, and The Holiness of God. If you have to read a book, it's that one, and it's so amazing. And once we begin to understand the holiness of God, it changes everything. It changes every aspect of our lives. It changes our worship. It changes our growth. It changes our trust. It changes our prayer life. It changes everything when we understand the holiness of God. But we don't understand what the holiness of God is. And a lot of times, many Christians don't even understand or know the definition, the primary definition of the word holy. But I believe this is the attribute that makes God God. This is the, the supreme attribute from which all other attributes flow. And this is what we're going to talk about tonight, the holiness of God. And I anticipate, like I said, this being more than one evening. Uh, tonight, we're going to... It'd be an introduction to what this word means, look in Isaiah 6, and then possibly next week looking into what effect the holiness of God has upon us. Because we're going to get down to verse 4 in Isaiah 6, and then we're going to stop there because in verse 5 it shows the response of Isaiah to understanding and seeing the holiness of God. And we're going to work through the response of people once they begin to see in, in just a small... Re proportion of His actual holiness, because we can't comprehend or fathom His real holiness and see it in its ultimate uh, magnitude. But those who had a glimpse of it, they had a certain reaction. We're going to see what that looks like and how it affects our lives. It even goes all the way down to the Lord's Prayer. You remember the first part of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. It's everywhere, and the holiness of God is of importance. So, we're going to do our best by the leadership of the Holy Spirit to begin to uh, plumb the depths of this attribute. So with that being said, before we get started, we, we must pray. Father, we ask for help tonight. Lord, we are finite creatures who cannot fully understand and fully grasp the infinite. And Lord, this attribute, we desire to understand more. And Lord, to whatever level a human being can understand 
your holiness. We pray for that tonight. We pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us about your holiness and teach us who you are. That it would forever change our lives. Lord, we are dependent on you and we ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were to go into churches across the world today and, or on Sunday when the, the biggest crowds are there, and if you had and you were able to conduct a survey and you were to ask every person that comes to church on Sunday and you'd say, tell me what the word holy means, they would probably give you the secondary meaning because there are two meanings with the word holy that we'll look at. There's a primary and there's a secondary. And the primary one is one we're going to really focus on tonight the secondary, we'll look into uh, maybe a few of the upcoming uh, parts of this, maybe in the weeks to come, but to, uh, to ask this question of what does the word holy mean? I, I believe, because I've been there and maybe you've been there too, that I believe that the majority of people would give you the secondary meaning or the definition. And that secondary meaning is pure and righteous actions or morally good. We say, well, being holy means you don't sin, and being holy means you're pure, and being holy means that you are uh, morally good and, and pure and righteous, and all those things that you do are of that nature, and that is true. As Christians, we are to be holy, and we'll look into that, what that means. And that is absolutely a definition of the word holy. But that's not the primary definition. And tonight we look at the primary definition. The primary word that we're going to look at here, a holy, coming from the Hebrew word kadosh, typically and most oftenly means to be set apart. Separateness, apartness, sacred, cut out from, or otherness. And this is what makes God God. If there is an attribute that makes God God, it is His holiness, because there is nothing or no one like God. And it's very important to us as Christians to understand that that gulf and that gap that exists between us and God is so uh, unattainable that we can't even comprehend it. He is other than. We talked about this on Sunday when we talked about He is the creator of all things. And, and there's only one creator and everything else is, a, is made by the creator. Everything else is a, a creature or it has been created by Him. So therefore, in that alone, He's other than. There's no other one who's sinless, but he is. He's other than. There's no one else who has life in themselves, which makes him other than. God's holiness is that there is no one like him. He is separate. He is other than. And there's no one who is even in the same breath or comparison to God. This is what we're going to talk about tonight, that he is set apart. He's other than. The holiness of God is the attribute from which all of His attributes flow. When we stop for a moment, we process that and we think, well, we've talked about God being omnipotent, where He has all power. Is there any other one who has all power? No, because God is holy. He's other than. There's no one who's omnipotent, but God is because He's other than and He's holy. There's no one like Him. Is there anyone else or is there any other being or any other creature that is all-knowing. No. But God is all-knowing. Why? Because He's holy. He's other than. There's no one like Him. Is there anyone else that's sovereign? Nope. God is on His throne. 
His sovereignty rules over all. How can he be sovereign and no one else can? Because he's holy. It's more than just sinless and morally righteous. It is other than, which is the primary meaning to which we look. And all the other attributes. I know you've changed. I know I've changed. But God is immutable. How can he be immutable? Because he's holy. There's no one like God. There's no one else who has all those attributes. Why? Because God is holy. This is the God of holiness. This is the the attribute from which all other attributes flow. He is incomprehensibly other than and indescribably separate than anyone or anything else. He is the only one who is outside of the created order, is before all things, has life in himself, is the creator of all things, and all these attributes are found in him and him alone. He is unique, he's distinct, he's transcendent, he is not like anything or anyone. And even in heaven, I think sometimes we get fooled and we trick ourselves and we we try to make ourselves a little bit higher than what we actually are. Because even in heaven with glorified bodies, do you know what we'll be? Creatures. We'll still be creatures. We'll be creatures for all eternity. And even in heaven, when we have glorified bodies and and we are in the presence of God, He is still other than. He's holy. And understanding the holiness of God is absolutely vital and necessary as it is the foundation of all other thoughts and understanding of God. It's very simple. We must understand the holiness of God as all things derive from that. Let's look at some biblical text on God's holiness. We'll read along here. In Exodus 15, verse 11, it says, Who is like you among the gods, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2 says, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Isaiah 40, verse 25 says, To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. You see the distinction that's being made? There's no one like him. He is holy. And all of his holiness is on display in who he is and his attributes. There's no one like him. Isaiah 57, verse 15 says, For this is what the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says. I dwell in high and holy places and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Psalm 99 verse 9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. Psalm 96 verse 9 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. I told you that if you begin to understand the holiness of God, it will affect your worship. It will affect how you worship God. And we're to worship in the splendor or the awe of His holiness. We're to tremble before Him all the earth. And if you have any understanding, if I have any understanding of the holiness of God, then it will start to bring about the fear of God, which we are to have. The Bible says that the beginning of wisdom, or the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We're to fear God and understand who He is. And to understand who He is, we must understand His holiness There's a pretty good chance that if we don't have a fear of God and we don't worship before His presence in awe and reverence, there's a pretty good reason we don't understand His holiness and we don't understand who He is. 
First Chronicles 16, verse 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. If you remember, there's two kinds of glory. There's intrinsic, to which God has, that's who He is. There's also ascribed glory, to which we bring to Him. And the more that we understand His intrinsic glory, the more that we will ascribe glory to Him. And it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in holy array. In 1 Peter 1, verse 16, we read this not too long ago in our study of 1 Peter. It says, Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. In Isaiah 46, verse 9, says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. This speaks to His holiness. Exodus 3, verse 13 and 14, this is where Moses is standing at the burning bush, and God declares that He is, I am. There's no other I am. It is God and God alone. In Luke 1, verse 49, this is Mary's Magnificat, where she is praying this, and she says, For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. These are just a few. We could spend all night reading verse after verse after verse on the holiness of God, the holiness of His name, His other than otherness. There's no one like God. He is holy. And we find this quite vividly in Isaiah chapter 6. And I want to turn there and I want to work through the verse, first four verses of Isaiah 6 as we begin to see God's holiness. One account here. I want to read verse 1 and then we'll turn to 2 Chronicles 26. It says this, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. It's an odd place for chapter 6 to start. In the year of King Uzziah's death. And let us for a moment look at the context and see who King Uzziah is. We find that in 2 Chronicles 26. King Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. Can you imagine that? There's younger than that in the Bible. Can you imagine a 16-year-old at the helm of a country? This is what King Uzziah had in front of him. And he reigned for 52 years. And in this time, Israel had great prosperity, had great military might had great security, and the name and the fame of King Uzziah had spread. But we're going to see how his life comes to a screeching halt, and why it does, and why King Uzziah is mentioned in first verse of chapter 6. In the very first five verses, you'll see that he succeeds uh, Amaziah in Judah, and we're going to pick up in verse 6, where it says Uzziah succeeds in war. So, Listen to this account of King Uzziah, who Isaiah had mentioned in the first verse of chapter 6. It says, Now he went out and warred against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities in the area of Ashdod and among the Philistines. God helped him among the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gurabal and the Munites. The Ammonites also gave tribute to Uzziah, and his fame extended to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. 
Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the corner Boutrus and fortified them. He built towers in the wilderness and hewn many cisterns, for he had much livestock, both in the lowland and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile fields, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle, which entered combat by divisions according to the number of muster, prepared by Jael, the scribe of Messiah, the the, uh, official under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officers. The total number of the heads of the households of valiant warriors was 2,600. Under their direction was an elite army of 307,500 who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. Moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the armies, shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones. In Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Look at this modern uh, at the time. Inventions of war where they had created things to launch stones and arrows and his mighty, uh, valiant uh, mind and, and the army that they had grew in strength and number and they were recognized for their power. And it says his fame spread afar for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. But then something happened. Y'all know that verse in the Bible that tells us that pride comes before the fall. And it does. Let's continue to read. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And here's what happened. Here's what brings about the demise of Uzziah. And if you hear this, there's a chance that one other story will start to ring in your mind. And you tell me if it begins to ring in your mind. It says, he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He's a king. Which tribe is he from? Judah. Was he allowed to be a priest or to perform any priestly duties? He was not. That came from the tribe of Levi. The Levites had that role. And he was so proud of himself, and he had such pride in his heart, and he he sees his fame, and he sees his military might and prosperity and fame in in Judah at that time. He's been reigning for 52 years. And he says, maybe I can do both. Maybe I am capable and worthy to go and offer sacrifice and incense into the holy place of God. Does that remind you of a story? Leviticus chapter 10 where Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, goes to offer strange fire to the presence of God. Now, they were from the tribe of Levi, but he, they were doing things that God had not commanded them to do. And they were struck dead. God showed mercy and restraint by not striking Uzziah dead here on the spot. If you remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu, we'll be there maybe next week or the week after, that he sees his, uh, Aaron sees his two sons dead there. Because they offered strange fire to the Lord. And you remember what Moses said to him? He said, anyone that comes near to God must reverence him as holy. You see, it's the holiness of God that struck those two dead. Because he's other than. 
And the holiness of God is not something to be played around with, but is to be understood with all of our might and held on to with every fiber of our being. And he was trying to be a king and do priestly things. And God did not strike him dead. He said, that's the beauty of Melchizedek. We've talked about Melchizedek many times, but before the Levitical law, before Exodus came, before God had given all the rules and regulations of the Levitical priesthood, and here comes Melchizedek in Genesis 14 on the scene, and he's a priest and he's a king. And it is that foreshadowing to which God would be then out of that order. The order of Melchizedek, who is the king, who is the priest. And I think there's some importance here that in Isaiah's vision, he sees a king who was trying to be king and he was trying to be priest and he failed. He couldn't do it. He was invading and coming into a place where God's holiness dwelt and he had no business being there. And look what happens. He doesn't get struck dead, but you see the scene. It says, Then Isaiah the priest entered after him in verse 17, and, and with him eight priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated, that means set apart, for a purpose, to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Isaiah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Can you imagine that? Here comes leprosy on his forehead. And we say, that's not fair. We look at the sons of Aaron, dead on the ground, and we say, that's not fair. One sin, why would he do that? Again, if we question why that's unfair, I can tell you with all sincerity, we don't understand the holiness of God. He could have struck him dead right here, and he would have been absolutely just and perfect in doing it. But leprosy breaks out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord. Verse 20, Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they heard him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out of there, because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, has written, so Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave which belonged to the kings. For they said, He is a leper, and Jotham his son became king in his place. What an abrupt turn of events for this king who'd reigned for so many years. The Bible tells us that the early part of his life, he was doing things that were pleasing to the Lord. They had military might, they had fame, they had prosperity, they were peaceful, they had security at this time. And after the sin of Uzziah... He's taken and abandoned to a house to live the rest of his days by himself, cut off from his people. You see, there was one who tried to be a priest and he tried to be a king. And he died in disgrace. And here is Israel, knowing this king for 52 years, seeing all that they'd had in King Uzziah, mourning in the land, And Isaiah starts in chapter 6. And he says this. He 
says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the real king. I believe that's what's at stake here. This one who had great might, his name was spread. He was stricken because he was trying to be a priest and a king. And even though there was mourning in the land of Judah, Isaiah sees a vision. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. That chapter 6 of Isaiah is going to parallel chapter 4 of Revelation. And if you, if you read the first few verses of chapter 4 of Revelation, what you will see is that vision of John starts with him seeing a throne. And he sees one sitting on that throne, majestic and glorious and holy. We'll come back to that later. But he sees the Lord sitting on a throne. Lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Let me stop real quick and talk about the train of his robe. In antiquity, the length of a robe of the king was in connection with his status. You remember, they didn't go and just say, hey, I'll take an extra large robe. They didn't go to the shelf and pick it up. It was handmade. The longer that it was, the more material that it took, the longer it took to put into this, And those who had the longer robes, we even see this even in the recent past, that the longer the robe, the greater the sign of strength, of status, of power, of authority. And here Isaiah sees Christ, he sees God sitting on the throne, the true king, the true one in the order of Melchizedek, who is the priest, who is the king. And it says that his robe fills the whole temple. I believe this speaks to the absolute status of God. That His robe can be contained in the temple. It is glorious and majestic and and it shows His ultimate authority and His power. And we know that the earthly temple was a shadow of the heavenly temple that was to come. And I will tell you that the terrain of his temple could not be held by the earthly temple. And the heavenly temple, which is his throne to which he dwells, he fills all of that as well. His robe fills the heavenly temple as his glory fills all the earth and his glory fills all the heavens, for he is holy. Isaiah is making reference to the length of his robe to show the absolute sovereignty, the absolute holiness, the glory, the majesty of this king who sits on the throne. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the heavenly temple where God's throne is and his holiness and majesty, God fills it all. And then in verse 2 it says, The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And I know we've covered this before, but it's of utmost importance. Let us work through it again. Because these are angelic creatures. And just like all other creatures, our Creator does something absolutely perfect. He creates 
for the environment to which one will be or the, to which the creature will be. Let me give you an example. Why do fish have gills? Because God knows and He's placed them in the water. He has made them and given them their functions to where they will dwell. Why does the birds have wings? Because they will be taking flight in the sky. And you can go through every creature. Why do we have the characteristics and the features we do? Because God knows that we would be walking on land and we would be where we're at. He's placed us where we're at. But angelic creatures are creatures as well. And they are created by God for where they will be and for what they will be doing. And we see this in the account of these seraphim. Now remember this, that these seraphim are in the presence of God Almighty. And they are designed to be in the presence of God Almighty. They have six wings. That is of utmost importance. We just don't blow that off and say, well, they have six wings. That sounds pretty weird. But no, the Creator is never at a loss and confused and just randomly puts something together in one of His creatures and says, oh, I hope that works out. No, it's deliberate. And everything He does is for a purpose. And these creatures, these seraphim, have six wings and He tells us what they're for. These creatures are made to be in the presence of the holiness of God. And it says with two, with two of their wings, it covers the face. We've mentioned this before, but you cannot hear that without thinking about Moses in the burning bush. Well, here in a little bit, we're going to get into Moses in the burning bush, but we think about Moses to when he saw, begged and pleaded to see the glory of God. Do you remember that account? He says, show me your glory. We find that in Exodus 33. He says, Moses, no one can see my full glory. If I was to show you my unveiled glory, you would die. If I was to pull back all the restraints and all the veiling and you were to see my holiness, you and every other creature would die. But Moses is given a privilege. He's given the privilege to see a passing, a fleeting glance, not a direct unveiled uh, sighting of the glory and the holiness of God, but a veiled passing glimpse of this manifestation of God's glory. And you know what happens to Moses when he comes down off the mountain? After seeing a brief, passing glance of a veiled manifestation of God's glory for just a moment in time, Moses comes down off the mountain and his face is shining. It's shining to the point to where the people there in the camp say, Moses, you are terrifying us because of your face that is shining. And it says that he had to veil his face until the glory had faded. Think about that just for a moment. Their brief, veiled manifestation and a passing glimpse of God's glory would make Moses' face shine to bring terror to those who saw him. 
Can you imagine what the full unveiled holiness and glory of God would be? We cannot. And maybe that's why that these seraphim who are in the presence of God and His holiness have their eyes covered. Because even though created to be in the presence of God, the unveiled glory of God may be just too much for these angelic creatures to behold. And even though they're there around the throne singing His praises, they have two wings that are covering their eyes for the majestic glory and holiness of God. This is almost too much to put into words. But this and these two wings cover their eyes from the full radiant holiness and glory of God. But he says that two of their wings covered his feet. Now we go to Moses in the burning bush. It is in Exodus chapter 3 that Moses is told by God that he is I am. But if you remember before that, in verse 5 of Exodus 3, when Moses was nearing the burning bush, what did God say? Moses, take off your sandals. Why? For the place you're standing on is holy ground. We're going to get into that in maybe the next week or the week to come. How can ground be holy? Now, remember, there's two meanings. The second meaning of holiness that we're all so accustomed with is, is perfect and righteous and without sin. Well, how can, how can ground be holy? Well, there's only one way that anything can be holy. And we'll talk about that at another time. How can, the, how can utensils in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle be holy? How can angels be holy? How can a mountain be holy? Here's even a greater question. How can you and I be considered holy? There's a way that that happens. But we first have to understand who is holy. And he tells Moses, take off your sandals, Moses, because the place you're standing at in the presence of I am is holy. It's a sign of submission and reverence that in the presence of God, it was holy ground. And maybe that's why that these seraphim who are in the presence of God and His holiness. Holy ground, if you will. And instead of removing their sandals, they have their feet covered. A sign of reverence to the holiness of this God. But then it says that they had two wings that they flew with. This speaks to their call and their working for the Lord. When God gave them a job and gave them a task, they used those wings that He had given them to fly, to be at His beck and call. When He sent them to go, they went, and they went with their eyes covered and their feet covered and with the two wings that were left to do the work of God. These are creatures who are created to be in the presence of God, and their eyes are covered, their feet are covered. At the, re the amazing majesty and glory in the holiness of this God. And one called out to another and said, before I go into what they say, 
We've also mentioned this before, but we must do it again. In antiquity, to the Jewish people, if you wanted to get a message across, you didn't put exclamation points like we did. We do. But you repeated words. You said the same word. It was a twofold repetition. If something was of utmost importance, then you would say the repetition of those words. And I'm going to pull back on my King James Version only upbringing to when Jesus wanted to make a point. Everything he said was important. But when he really wanted to make a point, what did he say? Before he spoke it, he said, Verily, verily, I say to you. And I encourage you that when you read the Bible, if you see those words now in the NASB, it's truly, truly. If you see truly, truly a repetition of words, I would take note. And his disciples would know that. They would listen to him intently, but when he started with truly, truly, I I believe the, the pins came out. And they said, let me take note, because this is of utmost importance. And there's an example of this. We see this in um, John 5, where he says, truly, truly, and he talks about eternal life, being in him. That's of utmost importance, isn't it? Truly, truly, verily, verily. It's almost like saying amen. Isn't that what we say when we agree with something? Amen, so be, let it be true. I heard this the other day, that you realize that, that Jesus didn't have to wait for anybody to say, so be it or true. He didn't wait to the end of it. He said it before. He was taking care of it. Let me tell you this. Amen. What I'm telling you is true. Truly, truly. I don't need your approval on it. It's true. So we see the repetition of words is of importance. And we've got a list here. And just go through them briefly. And when it speaks of a name twice, there's intimacy there. There's a personal message that's being conveyed. It is utmost importance. And we, we see this in Genesis 22, where Abraham is on Mount Moriah. And he is getting ready to put the knife to his son. And the angel of the Lord stops, and what are the next words? Abraham, Abraham. He stops him. He tells him the Lord will provide the sacrifice. Oh, and he did. He did. Jehovah Jireh would provide on that same mountain in that area. And the death of his son, the son of God. It's quite the type and shadow, isn't it? where Christ would be the true sacrifice that was slain in that area. In Genesis 46, verse 2, we see Jacob, Jacob. In Exodus 3, we mentioned this. He's Moses, Moses, when he's calling him to the burning bush. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, when Samuel is being called and given this task and commissioned to be a prophet of the Lord, this is when he's sleeping and he thinks that uh, he hears the voice of God or the other one that's there with him. Eli is calling his name and he goes in and he's like, hey, yes, what did you need? And he says, it wasn't me. And he says this twice. And he goes back in to Eli and he says, listen, what do you want? Eli's like, it's not me. It has to be the Lord. If If he says it again, say, your servant is listening. And it is in that message where he says, Samuel, Samuel. And he calls him into be working for him in the prophetic word of God. We see that in Luke 10, where Mary and Martha are in the house and Jesus is there. And Martha's up attending to the duties of the house. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus listening. And Martha brings that to his attention. 
And what does he say? Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, there's one thing that's of utmost importance, and Mary's got it right. Listening, fellowshipping with me, that's an intimate moment. In Luke 22, we see Simon or Simon Peter, where Jesus is telling him that Satan has asked to sift him like wheat. And he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Oh, but then here comes the, the you can just hear John 17 coming into this passage. He says, but I've prayed for you. Simon, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brother. It's an intimate moment there between Simon and Jesus. He says, Simon, Simon. When Jesus is looking over Jerusalem, he's lamenting. And in Matthew 23, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's lamenting over Jerusalem. And you see the double use of the word there. It's a twofold repetition. And then in Acts 9, when Saul is met by the power of God, blinded, put on his bottom, the voice from heaven says what? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? To which he would say, you're my chosen instrument and anoint him to be the greatest evangelist that has ever walked on this planet. But we also see it in Matthew 7. I said that there's the twofold repetition of names or in that connotation means intimacy or closeness. And it says that in Matthew 7 that there will be many on that day who claim to be Christians. And what will they say? Lord, Lord. I thought we were intimate. I thought I knew you. I did this in your name. I did that in your name. Lord, Lord. You see the intimacy in that word repeated. And he will say, I never knew you. A twofold repetition is of utmost importance. And finally, we see it at the cross. When Jesus, in the one time praying to the Father, he does not use Father. But what does he say? Eli, Eli. There's the twofold re repetition. Eli, Eli, Lama Sabathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Twofold repetition. That the son is looking to the father and saying, my God, my God. When you see two words repeated in this nature, you take note. It is of utmost importance. But what about when a word's repeated three times? Simple math would tell us it takes even more precedence, even more priority than a twofold repetition. That when you see a threefold repetition, you know that it's of extreme and the utmost importance. I've said all that to say this. That these seraphim, with their eyes covered and their feet covered and their wings to which they take flight in the presence of God Almighty, that the vision that he sees, the, the train of his robe filling the temple, and these, these seraphim are flying and they're crying. And look what they're calling out. Are you ready? Holy, holy, 
holy. That's a threefold repetition. And it is speaking to the holiness of God. That is why I believe I can tell you that of all the attributes of God, there's one that reigns supreme. There's one to which all other attributes flow, and it is the holiness of God, His otherness, His separateness than us. We are told that God is love. And to that I say, amen. He is love. But that's not all He is. That's an attribute of God, that He's love. That's a description of God. Would you agree? I believe that. Do you believe that God is righteous? Yes. Do you believe that He's merciful? Yes. Do you believe He's omnipotent? Yes. There's only one attribute of God that is spoken of in a three-fold repetition. As R.C. would say so beautifully, he would say, these creatures do not fly around the throne of God and say, God is love, love, love. He is, but that's not what they're crying. They do not fly around the throne and say, God is mercy and mercy and mercy. He is, but that's not their call. Because what attribute makes God God above all things is His holiness around the throne. Holy, holy, holy. Creatures designed to be in the presence of God and they know can't even look upon His glory. The full unveiled holiness of God is more than any creature can take. How important is God's holiness to us? That's what they're crying out in this scene. So many times in our Christian lives, we struggle, we doubt, we question. We don't worship properly because we don't understand the holiness of God. And when we get into the, the next parts of this, you're going to understand that when people see just a glimpse of His holiness, there's something that happens. It's a life-changing thing that happens. And it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, in Revelation chapter 4, I'll turn there just really briefly. And you see, it says a scene in heaven. And look how chapter 4 starts out. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. It's exactly what Isaiah sees. A throne, one sitting on it. And he who was setting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And the throne were, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders setting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. 
And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were given seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say. Here it comes, the threefold repetition. Here's what they never cease to say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. That's what they never cease from saying. Holy, 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 holy. That God is holy. He's other than. And this is what Isaiah is seeing. He says the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of His glory. The heavens are full of His glory. If you will, the train of His robe fills all. He says in verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. The mention of trembling and smoke, we've seen this before. They're a reference to God's holiness, power, wrath, and judgment. Where have we seen smoke and rumbling and lightning and thunder? We've seen that on Mount Sinai in Exodus, or, yes, in Exodus 19 and 20. We see that. that as they were there, there was lightning and flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and they trembled. In verse 18, it says, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and answered him with thunder. Answered him with thunder. And Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. Excuse me, Moses didn't answer him with thunder. The Lord God came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then in the next chapter, it says this in Exodus 20, verse 18 through 20. It says, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at the distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has came in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain on you so that you may not sin. You want to sin less? Begin to understand the holiness of God. Because I guarantee you, if sin and the option of sin is put in front of you, and in your mind and in your soul, you begin to think about the holiness of God, there's a good chance you're going to sin a lot less. You see what he says here? Don't be afraid, for God has come to test you in order that the fear of Him may remain so that you sin less. The mountain is smoking. The presence of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God on that mountain. And He says, if you can understand that, if you can be in awe of that, you'll sin less. 
And we see in Revelation 15 where the smoke is there in way of judgment. What a scene that Isaiah is seeing. He sees God. And John chapter 12 tells us that he sees Christ. When Isaiah quotes from, or when John quotes from Isaiah 6, he says, And Isaiah saw him referring to Christ <laughs> high and lifted up. Why would he see Christ? Because, as we talked about on Sunday, Jesus is God. Remember when they said that he would come and his name would mean God with us? God with us. And Isaiah sees this. He sees this vision in the threefold repetition of these seraphim. Holy, holy, holy. So you want your life to be changed. Pray and beg and plead for God to show you more and more every day a glimpse of His holiness. I said that R.C., so absolutely amazing on this. And I have four quotes from him here. I just want to read these as we begin to close this down. He says, The clearest sensation that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. Stop that and think about that just for a moment. One of the ways that God is holy is He's the creator and everything else is creation. And when you start to understand the holiness of God, your creatureliness comes to the forefront. You understand that you're just a creature who deserves nothing. That this holy God would even show favor and mercy on you for one second. You see, when you understand the holiness of God, your awareness of creatureliness really kicks in. But what's the lie of the devil? You shall be like gods. Remember that in the garden? We try to elevate ourselves to rule and reign in our lives. But when you understand the holiness of God, you realize you're just a creature. And He is holy. That is when we are in the presence of God. We are humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. This is the opposite of Satan's original temptation. You shall be as gods. That's beautifully said. We need to be aware of our creatureliness, that we have a creator. He is the potter. We are the clay. And I thought this next one struck to the heart. Listen to this. The modern movement of worship is designed to break down barriers between man and God, to remove the veil, as it were, from the fearsome holiness of God, which might make us, which might cause us to tremble. It is designed to make us feel comfortable. You see that in the world today. We come in and it's, listen, you and God are buddies. Break down all the walls. He's just like you. He was just a man who came and you have this close connection. And, and you, you know, you really, he wants you to realize how close you really are. And our worship is not geared to bring reverence and awe, but to bring emotional responses. Do you know what true worship does to you and me? It sometimes makes us close our mouth. 
You know what you should do every time you come into this place? You should be in awe of God. You should be in reverence of God. You should be in fear of God. I should as well. Every time I open the sacred scripture, the fear of the Lord should come upon me to know that I am speaking on behalf of God Almighty, the Holy One. If you stop to think about that for too long, <laughs> it starts to hit you in the soul. But we're to be in awe of God. We're to understand that there is a gulf between us and God. We're to understand that He's unattainable. And the only way that we have access to Him is through the work of Christ. It's designed to make us feel comfortable, at ease. But a true understanding of God's holiness will leave you in awe, will leave you in holy fear, and you will understand He's nothing like you. And He's nothing like me. He's holy. And we should worship Him as such. He says, Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Until we understand who He is, we will never understand the weight of our sin, the price that it took, and what God has done for us. We can't. And he says, God is not going to negotiate His holiness in order to accommodate us. Absolutely truth. I wrote this down at the end. It says, the understanding the holiness of God is of the ultimate importance to the Christian as it shapes all aspects of our lives. The more we realize the gulf between who we are as creatures and who He is, is the whole, as the Holy God, the more we will grow in worship, obedience, trust, prayer, sanctification, fear of the Lord, thankfulness, and all. And then I have these three words, which has hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Simply wrote, silenced by holiness. We're going to see this next week, possibly, where Nadab and Abihu has died. Moses says, whoever comes near to the Lord must reverence him as holy. And the two sons of Aaron are laying on the ground dead. And Aaron's response is absolute silence. Wherever you see throughout the Bible, people see the holiness of God. They're either on their face or they're in absolute silence. And I thought about this thought. The more that we understand the holiness of God, the more we will be silent on issues in our life. Let me give you an example. One of the things that, that you hear so often, how can a loving God not offer grace and mercy to all? How can God elect some before the foundation of the world? That's not fair. Have you heard that? 
Do you know why that is spoken? Because we don't understand the holiness of God. Have you ever complained about anything in life being unfair? Do you know why you do that? Don't understand the holiness of God. He owes us nothing. Not one thing does he owe me. He doesn't owe me health. He doesn't owe me anything. I don't have an inherent claim to God's love. I don't have an inherent claim to God's mercy or his, right, or his grace or his imputation of his righteousness. I have no claim to any of that. And the reason that I run my mouth and say that's not fair and complain and question all the time is because I don't understand the holiness of God. And I bet you would agree if you're honest. The more we grasp the holiness of God, the more mouths will be closed in complaining, murmuring, questioning, and the cry of all man, that's not fair, would be squashed in an instant if God would unveil His holiness to let us all see it for just a glimpse. That's my desire to be silenced by holiness. And when I can't speak a word, I pray that my soul rejoices more than it ever has. Holiness of God is the only attribute raised to the threefold repetition. It is that important, and it must be something that we strive and seek and pray for understanding on. And if there's any way to describe God, I think we could do it in this as closing, that He is holy, holy, holy. Let's pray. God, we pray for forgiveness. for our arrogance, for our complaining, for our lack of trusting you, and for the times, Lord, that of all of our hearts we've cried, that's not fair. God, you owe us absolutely nothing. You are holy. You are other than. There is no one like you. And Lord, we see as we read the pages of Scripture, those whom you gave a glimpse of your holiness to, their lives were changed. And Lord, we ask for that in our lives. We ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to understand and perceive your holiness and what it means more vividly, more clearly than we ever have. Lord, you are holy. 
Let that sink in our hearts. And Lord, guide us in the next coming up weeks as we continue to study this and understand what that means for us. But tonight, Lord, let our hearts turn to heaven and let us declare your holiness as well. That you are holy. 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 And as a seraphim, never tire of saying that. Let us never tire either. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.